90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, doing well. Start of virtual field camp this week, so that's that's pretty exciting. It feels, um, I don't know, it wasn't like the fanfare of last year because I worked so hard for so long. This year it was like, oh yeah, I'm ready to go. <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> yeah, instead of... Uh... You know, your your hiking pants and your boots and sunscreen and bug spray and your field pack that we've talked so much about. It's like laptop charger. Uh, wrist support. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, I was really excited to set up the Slack chat room again, though. We have 20 students this year, so twice as many as we had last year. And I said, all right, guys, the random channels for geology memes. And <laughs> one of my students was like, you sure you want to open that Pandora's box? <laughs> and I will tell you, I've not been disappointed yet. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> I wanted to laugh and say, oh, that's cute. There's no way you're going to have any time to, <laughs> to put up any geology memes past um, tomorrow. But that's okay. <laughs> They'll find that out soon enough. <laughs> oh, yes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that that's where that's where I'm at. Anything exciting going on with you? Uh, we've just been incredibly busy. Uh, we're actually the opposite of the academic schedule in my business. Oh, is it because, hmm. It's because well, all of you professors <laughs> yes. go on break and want to do everything in your lab. That's exactly what I thought. <laughs> and, you know, the the ideas start coming in about now, like the last week or two of class. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and everybody wants it by about... August 20 something. Yeah. 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 And there's all kinds of us. So we just got an email today from our IT department that said, if you need new computers for fall, you should have ordered them last week. (laughs) So I imagine you're having some uh, supply chain issues as well. Yes. And I mean, we love this time of year because we're always super busy and it's always the start of new projects, which is fun. Uh, so I'm not complaining, but <laughs> it is very busy and coupled with the supply chain. I mean, we've had uh, parts. So we had an order get put in for a uh, an animal detection system that we made. And the parts to make it are backordered till October. <gasps> oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, this stuff is crazy. I, I totally feel you about opposite of the academic calendar because I will say – And I stayed away from work last week for this exact reason, even though there still aren't a lot of people hanging around at our work. Um, Because everyone's like, oh, man, aren't you glad the semester's over? And because this is my busy, crazy time of year because of field camp. (laughs) Like, it just makes me want to punch everybody in the face. (laughs) Because they're like, oh, thank goodness. Yeah, we can have that meeting. I have all the time in the world. And I'm like, no. I have zero time. This is the busiest thing and the, you know, most challenging thing I do all year. But that's okay. You guys relax over there. It's fine. Right. (laughs) So I totally get it. I understand. But that's good. And we love it. So it's okay. Yes. And, you know, it's also, uh, we just passed this week, the the 41st anniversary of a pretty big geologic event, too. Mm -hmm. I remember it. Not true. I was born in 1980, and that is also when Mount St. Helens, the latest and biggest eruption, right? May 18th, 1980. Yeah. And that is also my daughter's birthday, and we should have named her Helen. (laughs) There you go. Drop the paperwork, Shannon. Oh, man. I I feel like not a geologist when you were like, look, we should talk about this. This was the date. And I thought, oh feel like I should have known that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So this is really interesting. Have you been to Mount St. Helens before? I have never been outside an airport in the Pacific Northwest. Okay. Well, I'll tell you that we drove by it and we went to the visitor center and 
we got the same, the visitor center is pretty far away from the mountain actually. Um, and we got the same response that I'm sure this person at the desk says many days of the year, which was, Oh, the mountains aren't out today. Right. (laughs) And I said, are you kidding me? (laughs) Like (laughs) I have one day in this area and we're here at this visitor center and I can't even like, you know, buy anything commemorative because I couldn't actually see the volcano because of all the clouds. Bummer. Yeah. yeah, it was a real big bummer, but also it just means we get to go back. So, <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But yeah. So, Mount St. Helens was a, I mean, the largest U.S. volcanic eruption. Well, outside of Yellowstone, but. <laughs> well, in, in recorded. Okay, fine. <laughs> time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it was really, it, it had a lot of the interesting, odd features that can accompany volcanic eruptions that are geologic events in themselves. And that's one reason it's really interesting to study. Okay. Um, one of the, so we talked to Chuck Amon, right? He was on and I remember he told some, uh, something about subduction zones, told me something. I'm sure you already knew this, that I'm always real surprised about. Because when we draw these subduction zones, because this is where Mount St. Helen is, is, it's on, it's in the Pacific Northwest, and it is, you know, along the Cascadia subduction zone, just to set the geologic stage. And I remember thinking that, you know, we draw these subduction zones when we're drawing subduction on the board for any class that we're teaching. And they're always at like this 50 or 60 degree angle, but that's not true, right? No, it's like single digit degrees. That blew my mind. And I thought, you should take my PhD away because I didn't know that. And I guarantee you, very few geologists know how low angle subduction really is. Well, it's one of those things where you've got to remember the scale of what we're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Even a low angle over the geologic distances. Yes. It's a lot of depth. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's so surprising to me. And I remember him talking about the Cascadia subduction zone and saying, saying that it was, you know, really low angle. And I was like, yeah, okay. Like 35. No, like 10. What? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's the source of all this magma. And Mount St. Helens isn't the only volcano along there. There is a whole bunch, but like you said, one of the biggest ones since we've been hanging out in this area. And the whole process of getting magma from a subduction zone is really cool because it all revolves around water. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is weird because you don't think water can make it down that far, but it does. And sometimes lots of water, right? And the addition of that water is the key that you get to the melting because that actual magma that's feeding all these subduction zone volcanoes. And this is one of my trick questions I always put on tests. It's actually melted overriding plate, not the subducting plate. Right. Well, so, I mean, and you get induced melt in the, in the mantle too, but as the, as the downgoing plate goes down and carries that water with it, eventually the temperature and the pressure are too much. It dewaters. Mm -hmm. That water rises. Injecting water into an igneous system makes it melt at a lower temperature. Yeah. Not intuitive, just like clouds float because adding water to air is less dense. Yep. (laughs) Not Uh, intuitive at all. (laughs) But when you add water to a melted rock, it actually melts at a lower temperature. Mm -hmm. So you get these magma plumes, and that's where you get volcanoes in this arc volcanism. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's that's really interesting. What what kind of depths are we talking about? Like all the water that's getting sucked down. I mean, it's seawater, but it's also water that's in the minerals too, right? It's but how far down does it get in this case? Like, do you know how deep the volcanism actually is in this area? I don't know in this area. My my gut reaction to that is somewhere in the neighborhood of like 20 to 30 kilometers. Okay. So that's still pretty uh, deep. Sort of based on plate thickness, but that that is a guess. That is a gut feeling. 
<laughs> I didn't mean to stump you already. <laughs> but no, I mean, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. That's pretty, that's some pretty deep stuff. I mean, I want to say tens of kilometers because I know I'm not wrong if I do that. Oh, there you uh, go. It, it's somewhere between 10 and 90, so. <laughs> that was an excellent geophysics answer. Yep. What do you, what do you want it to be? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you get this dewatering, you get the production of a volcano and Mount St. Helens has been active in geologic time for a long time. So I was actually surprised to learn that because I, I don't know anything. I talk about the Cascadia subduction zone so much because there's such a rich, um, oral history of that location about all the earthquakes and volcanoes. But I guess I never thought about, and I've never taught, like, when did subduction start there? I mean, we've had subduction on the western coast of North America through a whole lot of the Cenozoic. Um, but how old is the volcanism associated with Mount St. Helens? Yeah, so about 40,000 years. Okay. Yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty and, young. Right. And I, I did look up uh, the magma chamber depth here while we were talking. Ah, okay. Mm -hmm. uh, so there are two. And I'm going to say from a geophysicist point of view, nailed it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so factor 10. <laughs> uh, the upper magma chamber is 5 to 12 kilometers. Okay. The lower is 12 to 40. So that thoroughly encompasses my guess. <laughs> Thoroughly. <laughs> oh, that's great. Five. Um, that's terrifying. That's not far down at all. Yeah, I mean, it's three miles. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So, but anyway, 40,000 years ago, relatively young for us, relatively old for continental volcanism. Uh, at least here in the North American plate. Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, but this was called the Ape Canyon stage. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then the Cougar stage and then the Swift Creek stage. They've got all these. Oh and gosh. a lot of these come from terrible things that happen to places that we've named. Uh, yes, exactly. So you have a big eruption. Then you sit around for a while. Big eruption, sit around for a while. Right. Yeah. And, you know, there are things like uh, the Abe Canyon stage. Well, we had these big uh, andesitic eruptions. Uh, and they caused a mud flow that filled in a lot of things around it, apparently including something called Ape Canyon. Oh, okay. Why did uh, it have a name if this got filled in that long ago? But <laughs> I, you know, I'm sure somebody wanted to name something. Uh, yeah. Okay. That's you're you're correct. Yep. Mm -hmm. And so there was that. There was a few other little eruptive periods in there uh, that made the ancestral volcanic cone okay great but during the last ice age that got scraped off <laughs> that was my uh my next question is how did glacial activity uh you know how does it shape stuff up there probably quite a bit right oh yeah i mean that that far north even then uh you bet so mm -hmm. large chunks of the cone got transported away uh Glaciers are fantastic bulldozers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Uh, and then we got into some more eruptive period. I don't want to go through each eruptive period because they're really just year ranges and lists of terrible things that happened. Right. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, mostly mud flows in the early, the earlier eruptions. It, yeah. So when we talk about andesite lava flows, I mean, I know, I'm sure we've talked about this before, but the reason that these Cascadia volcanoes are so terrifying is because they're not basalt. So a basaltic lava has less silica, and the less silica you have, the more free-flowing that lava can be because silica forms in its silicon and oxygen in this tetrahedral shape that traps gases. And so the more of those tetrahedra that you have the sort of chunkier and the more viscous your lava is and therefore more trapped gases and you build up a lot of pressure before you explode, kind of like we talked about geysers, um, 
because the lava just can't free flow. So this andesitic lava is bad news because you've got all this silica because you're melting that continental plate. And therefore, when it goes, it's terrifying, right? But just like you said, John, it's not just the lava that's the problem. You get all these terrible things that come with it. And lahars are these really fast-moving mud flows. And when we say fast-moving, I mean, lahars are like, can be over 100 kilometers an hour. So really hot, liquidized mud and all the debris that goes along with it. Right. And, yeah. you know, a lot of that comes from water. You know, these are high elevation features generally. So you get a lot of ice and snow up on the peaks and then uh, eruptions are hot. So <laughs> you melt a lot of that and produce massive amounts of water flowing off the volcano that create these mud flows and debris flows. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. So these lahars, pyroclastic flows, which is like lava and mud mixed together, that's terrible. And then you get a lot of ash from these eruptions too. And that can be dangerous in a lot of different ways. It can. And, you know, I think this is one of my favorite things about volcanoes, even though I didn't go into volcanology in any way. They encompass every facet of our science. Man, they do. They, they spew stuff into the atmosphere. They have hydrology that is actually very important to their function. Mm -hmm. uh, so they have some more of that, you know, current quaternary type work to do. They've got deep earth. They've got subduction zones. They've got earthquakes. They've got all kinds of interesting geomorphological tilts. They've got remote sensing. They've got gas uh, that comes out of it. everything. Yeah. Yeah, it does. I mean, that's how when lava cools off, it locks in Earth's magnetic field. And so you can get primary magnetisms from that. You know, geochemistry about where the magma chambers are. That's how you can tell the differences in those depths and also the differences in these different eruptive phases too. I mean, besides just looking at the, the sequence of them, they di have different chemical compositions as well. Um, I sometimes get really uh, <laughs> overzealous with volcanoes when I'm teaching intro geology <laughs> and, and I'm not even a volcanologist either. So yeah, I mean, we have a, we have a class that we were just talking about before we started recording called volcanoes and earthquakes. And you think, well, why would you do that? And it's like, no, you get earthquakes around volcanoes because of the magma moving around. And that is crazy to me. Yeah. <laughs> like you can have that much magma moving. It causes the earth to shake. Terrifying. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and geodesy too. Not only do you have, all this stuff happening, and you put these GPSs on the side of the volcano, and you can put them, you know, and you can you can have them paired with um, all kinds of different seismological features too. But you can tell when it's moving, but you can also see it moving up and down, which is nuts to me. Like as the magma chamber fills, and I mean that's what some of our tilt meters get used for that we make. <gasps> That's terrifying. Is you're actually measuring the tilt of the ground. It's crazy. That is. It, it's foreign to me because of where I live, whereas, you know, tornadoes are foreign and terrifying to lots of people. And we're like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> but to think about a volcano, that's just cool. I can't imagine living close to that geologic hazard. Yes. I mean, tornado, relatively narrow. Yeah. Somewhat predictable, yeah. Swath of modest devastation. Uh, volcano, somewhat predictable. Widespread, complete devastation. Yeah, you can't run from a volcano. I mean, I guess you could get evacuated, hopefully. Before, have you seen the movie Dante's Peak? Look, <laughs> look. I love the movie Volcano, even though it is much. <laughs> yeah volcano is my volcano movie of choice i will say um we went to costa rica for our honeymoon um and it's funny because lots of little girls dream about their wedding and i dreamt about my honeymoon because i was so obsessed with jurassic park that i wanted to go to costa rica 
All right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we did. <laughs> and we stayed on the side of a volcano. We stayed on Arnold Volcano. And we felt an earthquake at night. And I mean, it's an active, you know, volcanic system there. And there's evacuation routes everywhere. And we felt that earthquake. And my husband was like, are you kidding me? Is that exactly what I thought it was? And I said, oh, yeah. Yeah, it was. And it turns out there had been eruption two weeks before. It was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it was super exciting. We didn't get to see. There wasn't like an eruption, but there were definitely parts. They said that there were parts of the volcano trails that were closed um, because of that previous eruption. And so that was um, as close as I've gotten to a, an active lava situation. But that was exciting. I've, I've flown over a large, probably couple hundred meter diameter vent that had lava <gasps> flowing in it in really? a helicopter. That was oh, awesome. That's amazing. I've never seen it. That's super cool. But I, yeah, uh, I'll also say it's just, it's one of those hazards that I don't know that I would want to live super near, but they fascinate me. <gasps> Correct. Mm-hmm. You think about it when all these little, these small islands, I mean, especially in like Indonesia, in these subduction zones where you have all these just, you know, rows of volcanic islands that are incredibly active. And it's not, it's not if, it's when. And what do you do? You know, and there's some, this 1980 eruption of volcano, or of Mount St. Helens, there was um, a geologist, I think it was just one guy, who was killed. There's a terror. I mean, it's a really great movie, a documentary about him and like what he did to sort of, it was a USGS geologist um, about what he did to like stay there and monitor everything. And then when he figured out like, you know, he was not going to make it, you know, he still was like doing science until the lava got him, which is just, oh, that's a lot of, a lot of dedica- dedication and, it's horrible, but even, you know, even experts don't know sometimes in the face of these really cataclysmic eruptions. Well, and we've had a customer <laughs> show us, okay, we built this little, or, you know, they built this little shack to house seismometers and some other things in a volcano. And uh, they're like, yeah, next time we went back, a volcanic bomb had landed on it. <gasps> it's like this, you know, rock the size of a Volkswagen bug. <laughs> Oh <laughs> just crushed gosh. it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, yeah, so that part of Dante's peak, you know, <laughs> that could happen, <Yeah>. I guess. <laughs> well, and so, you know, stuff that gets ejected out of volcanoes, uh, they've got, of course, a, a cool volcano word for it, Tephra. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Super cool. <laughs> and it's hard to scale because it's measured in cubic miles of rock ejected. Which doesn't even, like, that doesn't even make sense, right? Right. hmm Yeah. So the, the May 18th eruption of St. Helens, it was preceded by, uh, in March, actually, an earthquake and then a lot of steam venting. Which so we means, knew something was coming. Exactly. So the earthquake is that magma moving around underneath there, which isn't always moving so much to make an earthquake, right? Right. And so May 18th, when the eruption happened, there was a magnitude 5.1 earthquake. And pretty much the whole north side of the mountain fell off. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the largest debris avalanche in recorded history. Wow. That surprises me. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So then you had, of course, Lahars. Uh, This was, I mean, it it flattened a couple hundred square miles. Mm Mm-hmm. And so it blew out the side and did all this flattening. And this, David, I just looked this up too, because I wanted to remember his name. David Johnston is the guy who was a USGS geologist, he was a volcanologist that died in that eruption when that exact thing happened. It says he was 10 kilometers away 
on that morning, and it was the lateral blast that swept him away, those pyroclastic flows and lahars. Yeah, and so you said pyroclastic flow. That's another terrifying phenomena. <sighs> I once had a dream that I was surfing a pyroclastic flow, and I will myself to have this dream again. <laughs> right. Because, <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> I guess when I was taking igneous class, and I've remembered it ever since. Um, so the lahars are these hot mud flows that come down, but then pyroclastic flows are like lava and hot water and huge clasts of rock that are also flowing very Ash. fast. Yeah. It, it is a turbidity current. Yes. Down the side of the volcano. It's it's floating on a cushion of air, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, it flows very, very fast. You're not going to be able to outrun it. And they have also been studied with Doppler on wheels radar. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Hmm. I didn't know that. Where did they get to watch these? I don't remember where it was, but I remember seeing that they had done, it was either single or dual Doppler. And it, the, you could see all kinds of, like you could see rotors and all kinds of neat stuff. Oh, wow. Yeah. That sounds like a pyroclastic flows would have a pretty awesome fluid dynamic environment going on. Yeah, for sure. And if you think about it, it's kind of similar to what happens in thunderstorms physically. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Same physics, different time scale. Well, actually, that's close to the same time scale. <laughs> yeah. Um, and to give you an idea of the amount of eruption, so the, the blowout of the side of St. Helens was about a 24 megaton bomb. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that's just insane. Um, the north side, and okay, so if I tell you it's, you know, so many cubic kilometers of material like that doesn't mean anything yeah um what i can tell you that means something at least to me is it knocked the height of a mountain down 1300 feet or 400 meters yeah that's a lot that's yeah. a lot the before and after pictures of mount saint helens are I mean, I wouldn't see that after picture and think that had anything to do with the before picture. That's how much it altered the landscape. Yes. And surprisingly, well, I mean, we did have a lot of warning. Uh, so fortunately, only 57 people were killed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, which but, is, I mean, that's still a lot. <laughs> it's still a lot. Uh, also an estimated 7,000 big game. Oh, wow. That's... An incredible amount. And 12 million fish. Because <gasps> once magma hits water. And magma hitting water is bad news, too, because then you have magmatophreatic explosions, essentially. So. Mm -hmm. And, you've, you know, you do have all kinds of uh, acidification of water due to things that are happening in the volcano. It's, yeah, bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I found this account to... Obviously, the eruption's really loud, right? But there's a Forest Service employee that was talking about the landslide and the pyroclastic flows. And he said that there was, this is his words, recalling the pyroclastic flows. There was no sound to it, not a sound. It was like a silent movie, and we were all in it. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? And it says like the motion and temperature of the air and the topography of that coming down created this weird quiet zone. Oh, <laughs> that would be creepy. Yeah. Super terrifying. And I'd want to get somebody on here to talk about specifically electrification around volcanoes. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there's a lot with this, but it's a fascinating topic. I did some work on electrification with earthquakes when I was in grad school and read some of the volcano papers, and it just blows my mind that you're producing lightning just from rock hitting each other in the air. Right. I mean, they call them pyrocumulus clouds. Yeah. That's, yeah. I mean, those are, you know, famous pictures of most big volcanoes that have a lot of ash because you need that. Um, yeah, I agree. This is this is very interesting. And this account of of that... Of this Mount St. Helens, you know, the day that it erupted is just, it's terrifying to think about. 
So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's not over. No. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, that was what, so I had never been to the, I'd been to Vancouver, but I hadn't been around the Pacific Northwest. Like I flew into Vancouver for a meeting and out again. Um, and the same thing in Seattle, I flew in and out of there. But when my friend and I, who I know we've talked about here before, taking our big road trip with our children, we went to the Pacific Northwest. You know, we chose, we said, we're going to go to Mount Rainier for a week um, and then go all around up there. <laughs> and going through that landscape was surreal to think about all the the hazards, you know, and we camped on the beach in Northern California. There was a really cool campground outside of Crescent City. And everywhere there were tsunami evacuation routes. And she's like, what is this about? Like, what is the the likelihood of this happening? And I was like, it's not if, it's when. And she said, what? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and so, you know, I tell her all this story. She's like, thanks, I'm never sleeping. And I said, look at this cliff up here. And so this, you know, pretty sandy looking cliff, you can tell it's not like super old rocks or anything. And I was like, that line right there, those large boulders, that's a tsunami event. And then that line up there, that's another tsunami event. And she was taken aback that that many people would live in these areas, you know? Like we went around Mount Shasta and Lassen and everything. And it's like, those of all, there are pictures of Lassen. We were there on the 100th anniversary of its last eruption. And (laughs) there are pictures of, you know, these people in these fantastic Victorian clothes up near this big, you know, magma chamber that's just spewing lava everywhere and so all of these things aren't you know these are not extinct volcanoes by any means no not at all and in fact you know just in the last well since 2000 uh, there hadn't been a lot of activity since about 2008 mm-hmm. um, but up to then it was you know all kinds of stuff going on in the crater Uh, It was building lava spines and they would fall down or collapse. There were sometimes ash clouds, uh, especially in the 90s. There were quite a few uh, little little explosions with ash. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And these lava spines are really cool. They're just uh, big pieces of rock that rise out of the ground and eventually (gasps) fall over. Just pushed up by the, the magma chamber underneath. I mean, and so... The stage you talked earlier, John, about like the different stages where it's been active. And so this stage that it's currently in, the Spirit Lake stage, it's been active for like the last 4,000 years. Um, But then the last stage where it was active, I mean, it was active eh, for about 4,000 years and the stage before that, 10,000. So, you know, I mean. But to think that we're here at the end of a stage of activity. Is so tiny of a chance. Correct. <laughs> I mean, that, that's probably 4,000 plus or minus 500. Right. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And for the one before to be much longer than that, the one before that was, you know, 7,000 years. So that does seem like that is an astronomically low chance that everything's going to shut off up there. Right. And I mean, there's still continuing impacts from it. You can still see all kinds of remnants from the 1980 eruption. But what also really surprises me is how quickly nature rebounded. (gasps) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Correct. And that's this before and after picture um, to think about like what it looks like now too. So the pictures that I was looking at was obviously like right after it happened. And then to look at it now. Yeah, you're exactly right. Like huge trees everywhere. You wouldn't even, not you wouldn't know, but yeah, it doesn't, everything came back. Yeah. Well, and I also saw the, uh, the national weather service had tweeted a photo from a geostationary visible satellite mm-hmm. showing the progression of the eruption. You could see all the the ash cloud and the plume. 
Oh, yeah, wow. I mean, this plume, this plume went up like 15 miles. It was significant. Pretty big. Uh, and especially to see it on geostationary satellites of 1980s vintage. So mm-hmm. clearly, I mean, it had to be massive. Uh, the pictures of, like, on that, so you said in March, part of it blew off. Right. And then the big one was in May. Well, there were earthquakes and steam. Yeah. And steam in March, yeah. And then the uh, the huge eruption in May. Right. But the the bulge of the rock, like the solid rock being pushed up by that magma chamber, like immediately preceding that eruption, those pictures are very unbelievable to me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was growing at a rate of up to five feet per day. Yeah. <laughs> Feet of solid rock. Feet of solid rock. And it said by the day before the eruption that north side had been pushed upwards and outwards over 450 feet. Yeah. Wow. Uh-huh. So that is, uh, that's very interesting. And the way that they erupt, I don't know a lot about this, um, too, but there are a lot of different, you just talked about the ash was, you know, 15 kilometers high. Um, There's all kinds of ways that volcanoes can erupt. And like Plinian is one of the names of a way. And so there was a Plinian eruption. And that meant that there was, you know, a whole bunch of ash and tephra that you talked about earlier that got sent up into the atmosphere. And this is named after and similar to you know, volcanoes that you would see in Italy, which are also active right now too. And so the different ways that they erupt are all a thing you can study too, if you're interested in volcanology. So just like you said, there's a lot of almost every geoscience thing (laughs) is happening around a volcano. Oh yeah. Uh, So I think they're, they're fascinating. I thought it would be a good time to check in 41 years later mm-hmm. and talk about this. I think it'd be very fascinating to go see. And, you know, of course with uh, volcanoes going on right now in Iceland, I've known several people that have gone there to see those mm-hmm. uh, different yeah. style of eruption, but would be equally fascinating mm-hmm. to see. Yeah. Uh, different magma just, type too. So not as, not as explosive as this Mount St. Helens one. Yeah, and it's just it's just hard to believe for me that this is something that I remember hearing about. Uh, you know, even in elementary school, it was still pretty yeah. recent at that point mm-hmm. and on everybody's minds. And now it's uh, a lot less remembered. Yes, yes, I find that very interesting too. I remember, you know, asking my mom, like, you know, what were you doing when this happened? Because the first that large earthquake was right before my birthday, so you know, I'm sure she was not paying that much attention to the news. <laughs> At that time, but still, that was a thing that they talked about a lot. So, yeah. Well, yeah, I think it's one of those things that, you know, everybody knows where they were during the JFK assassination yep. event. Yep, exactly. Uh, everybody okay. knows where they were during 9 11. Yep. Everybody mm-hmm. knows where they were when Mount St. Helens erupted. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. I was probably laying on the couch, <laughs> yep, <laughs> not probably. able to walk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm hmm. This is, this is really interesting. This is a really good uh, revisit of this. Um, it always gets me excited to teach intro geology when I think about doing all these volcano things. And, you know, there's a lot of really cool um, USGS articles and pictures about this. So if you were born long after this and haven't looked into the Mount St. Helens eruption or just haven't in general, I highly suggest... Um, looking through the USGS archives because the pictures they have from the Lahars and that magma bulge and all that are pretty impressive. Cause like John said, like we knew something was going to happen. And so there was very intense monitoring all around of the, of the volcano that year. So. Right. Okay. Well, I think with that, Before we go on too long, it's time to move on to everybody's favorite segment of the show. Fun Paper Friday. (laughs) Yay. So 
<laughs> this um this fun paper came again from our mutual friend that instead of writing his dissertation is looking up fun papers for us. <laughs> so <laughs> thanks again, Matt, <laughs> for doing that. And I don't know how we're gonna talk about this Turpin et al. paper from evolutionary psychology since this is a um this is a family show. <laughs> Yes, so it's a bull hockey ability <laughs> as an honest signal of intelligence. <laughs> Except for the the BS word is spelled out. How many times was it in this paper? As little over 230 when I did a search in the PDF. <laughs> so I'm not convinced that this wasn't written just for gratuitous use of the spelled out word BS throughout this entire academic paper. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, is this, did this paper make you feel good about yourself? <laughs> I'll put it this way. There's nothing in this paper that I found surprising. <laughs> Even though it's a 2021 paper. <laughs> right. Yeah, I agree. Um, I highlighted several several passages does not mean it's not entertaining <laughs> and you know even if we're pretty sure something's the case science says we still need to test it and boy did they uh yes correct <laughs> um, there's so many participants in this study too like so so often you're like you publish these studies with like 50 people because that's all you could get that would be you know willing to put their hand inside the mosquito chamber or whatever <laughs> But for this one, you know, over a thousand people participated in this study and it is looking at someone's ability to BS, someone's ability to take in BS and how that corresponds to intelligence. Um, the thing in the abstract that I found interesting is that they said, we find that BS ability is associated with an individual's intelligence and individuals capable of producing more satisfying BS are judged by secondhand observers to be more intelligent. Okay, great. We interpret these results as adding evidence for intelligence being geared towards the navigation of social systems. And I'm just saying that coming from this socially awkward person that sent us this, I think that's really funny because he is also one of the best people I know at BS. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. He found that pretty amusing as well. <laughs> yeah. So basically they, they gave some terms. Well, they did several experiments, but one, they gave some terms to participants some mm -hmm. of them were real, some of them were fake. And they asked them to rate their familiarity with each term. And of course, some people were like, I'm very familiar with uh, <laughs> the principle of counter-flabbernation, you know, or whatever <laughs> they had made up. <laughs> and those people were ones that were honed in on as probably have the ability to produce BS. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, And then uh, they, they were asked to write uh, definitions for a set of terms. And if it's one they didn't know, to make up a uh, satisfying definition. That's right. Yeah. A, um, there was a great thing. I thought that was interesting. Satisfying. But yes, go ahead. <laughs> I mean, think about it. There's a lot of topics where the real definition is very not satisfying. It's very not sexy. That is absolutely true. And so, yeah, BS is sexy. So let's make up some satisfying definitions. <laughs> yeah. And then they would present these definitions to another group and say, rate these. Like, how believable are they? How satisfying are they to you? And that helped them gauge how good at producing BS that BSer was. <laughs> and then they used some other metrics. Now, uh, the RPM or Raven's progress are yeah, progressive matrices mm -hmm. uh, to ascertain the BSers abstract reasoning and nonverbal fluid intelligence. That was an interesting one. <laughs> I hadn't. Um, yeah. 
I haven't read a paper where they do this, right? So this Raven's progressive matrices thing. Um, they had the people, they had partially obscured visual patterns and they select the available pattern fragment to complete the pattern, right? So I guess it says it's 60 items, five levels of difficulty, and you're basically, how fast can you do it, right? Right, it's supposed to be some innate intelligence measure. Right. Now, there's probably another score or two of papers out there on whether it's any good yes. at all. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Correct. I did enjoy the things talking about profundity, which I thought this was hilarious. Um, assessing their receptivity and sensitivity to pseudo-profound BS. Right. Which, let me tell you, if somebody, if you're watching a video and they start it with life hack, you have seen <laughs> pseudo-profound BS. Correct. And they, I mean, they say as much in there. <laughs> right. But I love this. Um, so they did 10 pseudo-profound BS statements, 10 motivational quotes, and 10 mundane statements. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> so the examples much. are great. Yeah. Wholeness quiets infinite phenomenon. <laughs> so there's your pseudo profound statement. Exactly. Statements that were randomly arranging a list of profound sounding words in a way that preserves syntactic structure. <laughs> oh man, I love it. This is really great. And then obviously motivational quotes <laughs> and then just, you know, dumb sentences. <laughs> Right, so like, a wet man does not fear the rain. Motivational quote. <laughs> and then the normal sentence is something like, newborn babies require constant attention. Right, so you have to rate the profundity of all those on a Likert scale, which is hilarious. And then a BS receptivity score was calculated based on that. <laughs> In other words... How much can a poster with a few words on it make you feel good? Exactly. I, this was fantastic. <laughs> that was my favorite part of the whole study. <laughs> it was. And I will uh, point to a non-sponsored <laughs> uh, link <laughs> of despair.com. Oh, man, that's a that's a rabbit hole I don't have time to go down to. <laughs> yeah. uh, these are demotivational posters. Definitely owned some of those demotivational posters. My college roommate Val and I absolutely loved them. We had several. Uh, one of my favorites just shows the bow of a ship sticking up out of the ocean as it's sinking. And it says mistakes. It could be that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others. <laughs> <laughs> is that hung up in your customer service department? <laughs> <laughs> oh man <laughs> um yeah so they did a lot of just you know a, a lot of statistical fun stuff with all of this to come up <laughs> with some interesting um some interesting results right uh maybe some things that are counterintuitive too well, let's start with the intuitive one, which any jaunt around an academic conference would have told you. The more intelligent the person, the better they are at BSing. <laughs> and, and so they explain this as a social mechanism, which is funny. So in, basically by you can BS and that shows off that you're intelligent and then more people are going to want to mate with you makes sense <laughs> makes sense not necessarily the actual course of things but makes sense <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> um yeah so you know you're more intelligent and this is a way of showing how intelligent you are and since and this was something that they referenced a lot in here is that you know people why are humans so intelligent because big brains require lots of energy so why why do we have these abilities Anyway, and it's just, it's an efficient way. BSing is an efficient way to show off that intelligence and therefore your suitability for mating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there you go. 
Yeah. All right. So what about some of the other conclusions? What was your favorite? Um, so <laughs> they, they said that they found, you know, those more willing to BS were also more likely to be receptive to pseudo profound BS, <laughs> which I thought was really funny. <laughs> and they followed that up with contrary to the common expression, it may indeed be possible to BS a BSer. <laughs> I use this statement three times today in three separate contexts. So that one actually, yeah, surprised me. <laughs> I, I think of that as the, uh, and please don't email me, used car salesman. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Correct. I did think about that a lot um, while I was doing this too. Um, yeah. So when they talked about the BS producers, so the perceived intelligence of BS producers was negatively associated with their receptivity to pseudo-profound BS. So those perceived as more intelligent on the basis of the BS they produced were less likely to themselves judge pseudo-profound BS as profound. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, exactly. So um, – the other thing that was very interesting too, I thought that even though people were good at BSing, they often didn't. And I thought that one was very interesting too. So one's ability to produce satisfying BS is independent of one's willingness to produce BS. Right. Yeah. So I, I feel like I fall into that category. I feel like I could BS people if I had to, but I don't do it as much as I could. And they I mean, say we that did that's... get our PhDs. Hey, <laughs> piled higher and deeper. <laughs> but I mean, I could get more PhDs. <laughs> 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 so there's that. Right? <laughs> so I found, I found that correlation very interesting. So just cause you can, doesn't mean you do maybe because there are other ways that you can show off your intelligence. Right. Yeah. Well, so. if if you have collected <laughs> your own uh, pseudo profound BS statements <laughs> and tried them out on your friends and family, and would like to send those items along with their calculated RPM score, <laughs> we would love to compile that data for you, Shannon. How can they get a hold of us? Absolutely. Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Um, increasingly, I will be on Slack, so come find us there. We're in the Software Underground on the Don't Panic channel. We're on Twitter at Don't Panic Geo. John is at Geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters. If you would like to support our BS, you can do so. Patreon.com slash Don't Panic Geo. And even though the podcast host fires up their bulldozers to prepare for all of the BS when we post every Friday, until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our